Hello and welcome to Writing on the Walls. I'm your host, Rob Lavati. I'm very excited today to be joined by the nationally renowned clinician, author, and educator, Dr. David Treadway. Um, some of the things we get into on this episode today, um, Dr. Treadway discusses the impact of losing his mother to suicide at just 20 years old and how it affected his family. Um, he also talks about how family systems typically respond to suicide as well as the idea of being frozen in grief, as he calls it. Um, We also discuss how to continue the conversation with a lost loved one, uh, specifically through uh, writing letters is one mechanism that Dr. Treadway discusses. Um, And finally, we talk about some of the contributing factors to the higher suicide rates amongst men. Um, I think you'll really enjoy this conversation and, and find it as helpful as I did. Just a quick disclaimer, uh, we did have some challenges with the audio while recording this episode. I'm still working out the kinks of recording podcasts remotely. Uh, You may notice some background noise and even the uh, occasional phone notification, but I can assure you I did my best to provide you with a quality episode. Um, So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Treadway, thank you for joining me today. I'm delighted. This is a great opportunity to be talking with you. Thank you. I've really been looking forward to this. Um, I I think there's a lot we could get into in this conversation with your experience as a clinician, as well as an educator, um, as well as being a survivor of suicide loss. Um, There's a lot of different angles I think I could go in this conversation. Um, to, to start things off, there, there's a question I like to ask to kick things off, and I, I would love to hear your perspective on it. Um, uh, understanding the loss of uh, your mother in, I believe it was 1966, mm-hmm. um, what would you say is the most important thing you learned um, either from your mother or uh, from losing her to suicide? It, it's been it's been over 50 years, and so... Um... The amount that I've learned about myself, my family, my mother uh, is incredibly uh, extensive. It's it's formed my life to a degree Hmm. because um, my life, oddly enough, was transformed by my mother's suicide uh, in an unusual way. Her suicide shattered my family. My father had a nervous breakdown afterwards. My sister had a nervous breakdown. My older brother turned to aggressive alcoholism. And by default, I ended up being the, the, thir- the third of four children suddenly made into the leader of the family, which in fact ended up being a really good thing for me in an odd sort of way. So suicide impacts everybody in a family quite differently. And one of the key learnings that I would like the listeners to pay attention to is there's no right way or, or, or healthy way that's better than another way to respond, that people have different responses. And my response was just to go utterly frozen, go numb and, mm. and, you know, sleepwalk my way through my life for a stretch of time. 
after this. And my sister, I remember clearly uh, when I arrived home to Boston uh, after my mom had killed herself and I was just showing up kind of like the way I'm talking to you, just showing up. And my sister was really angry that I wasn't showing any feeling and what kind of cold person I might be. And I felt, what is the matter with me? I wasn't having any kind of response at all. So, so learning that my response, which was to go numb, to go frozen, et cetera, and her response, which was to be overwhelmed with grief and everything else in between, including my brothers picking up booze, they're all different ways that people actually go through the unbearable power of what a suicide does to a family. Mm. Very, very well said. Um, and I, I think I'd like to pull on a little bit. You described this feeling of, of being numb or being frozen, which uh, I hadn't heard that word to describe that being frozen. And it's something that um, when I read it in one of your publications last night, it really just kind of hit me to the core because, uh, you know, in 2017, um, I, I lost my father as well to suicide um, and went through uh, a wide range of emotions all at the same time. Um, I think I did some of the running away that you described your brother having gone through um, with substances and alcohol and uh, distance moving away from where it happened. Um, but this numbness is something that went on for really the first few years. And I didn't, didn't fully understand that's what was, that's what was going on. I thought it just didn't affect me. Um, but as I'm sure you learned in your journey and what I would like to hear about is what was it like and what did it take for uh, that, that numbness or being frozen to like thaw out, if you will? Well, it, it took actually a really long time. Let's, let's start with the nature of the numbness response, the frozen response, because it isn't that unusual. Every, people generally know when they talk about trauma responses, they use the language of fight flight response. You know, uh, you know, the, 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 the trauma response used to be characterized that way. It is now characterized as fight flight and frozen. But you know, that's a relatively new construct in the last uh, decade or so. And the frozen one, if you, if you think about it, actually makes sense in the sense that the enormity of the feelings are overwhelming. The body goes into shock. The heart goes into shock. The brain goes into shock. And all of a sudden, you're kind of just walking through your life, not connected. That is a very powerful self-defense that that uh, us humans are capable of soldiers have that response all the time they they have a, a buddy dying in their arms and they you know go go uh, shoot pool and drink beers later without necessarily connecting to the enormity of what they've been through they go into a state of shock so the so the first thing that i had to learn in my journey was that my state of of frozenness wasn't because I was a jerk. I didn't care. It wasn't because I it was cold. It was, that was my coping mechanism. And it, to be blunt about it, it took me a lot of years of my own being in, in therapy to actually get to the point of dealing with uh, the enormity of the feelings I had 
about the loss of my mother. And they're very complicated feelings because the other thing that causes frozenness is when feelings are enormously big and oftentimes contradictory. I was really angry with my mom. She had really bailed on life in with alcohol and all kinds of destructive ways. And, and I was, I had rejected her and moved away from her. So I was really angry. I had enormous guilt because of the ways in which I had been disengaging from her. I had enormous sorrow for what she went through, but I also had enor enormous sorrow for being left and abandoned by her. And I also had had um, uh, a sense of, of, you know, that for her to be able to do that to us, her children, meant that she didn't really love us anyway. So think about what I just said, those feelings don't go together well. <laughs> and, right. and so what happens is the, the, the heart and the brain kind of short circuit a little bit like if you have a if you have an electrical charge like a lightning lightning charge that goes through the house, it, sh it can shut out all the electricity. So the the nature of being frozen is not as uh, confusing as as you think it is. It's the feelings are too big to process, and this whole system shuts down. Do you feel in a way uh, that was very well explained? Do Do you feel in a way that that response could be uh, a body a body's way of naturally protecting? Yes, um, its its owner. Yes, because uh, I I know for me the feelings that came up around losing my dad, if I would have sat and felt all of those out that close to the event, I, I don't know how it would have been processed or how I would have made it through it. Um, I think taking time and space away from it, it was exactly what I needed. Yeah. Well, in my family case, it was very directly personal. My sister shattered and was in a mental hospital four days after my mother's funeral and my father mm -hmm shattered and in a mental hospital, you know, a, a week and a half after the funeral. So two members of the family did exactly what you're describing, which is to actually not be frozen, feel it all. And they, they came apart. And, yeah. and oddly enough, uh, part of them coming apart and nobody being around to actually do take care of them except for me, I kind of got promoted by accident. So, so I was a college kid and I was kind of a lackadaisical, easygoing, you know, uh, party, party, hearty college kid. And the next thing I know, I'm going from Philadelphia. I went to the University of Pennsylvania. I'm going to Philadelphia on Friday afternoon, driving to Boston to visit my dad at the hospital in Massachusetts and spending a day with hanging out with him in the hospital. And then I'm getting into my car and going to New York City to be with my sister on Sunday. And then I'm going back to, to, to college and trying to be like a student. And, you know, nobody knows what to say to somebody who's in that circumstances. My friends would, would say things like, you know, these are a bunch of college age guys. So they, they, they were kind of what you'd expect, but they'd say, man, that sounds really hard. What a bummer. You're going to make the party on Friday night. And, and <laughs> it was sort of like they, they, they weren't getting it and there wasn't an actually anybody to turn to. You know, I don't know. I don't know if I could have opened up, but I was not. I didn't have anybody to open up to either. Mm. 
I, I definitely agree with what you just said, which is I don't think we're taught. I, I don't think we know how to console someone who's going through any any type of loss, let alone a loss to suicide. I'm wondering uh, if just based on your experience, if you have any on the top of your head, what some of those unhelpful things we hear and say are when someone loses someone to suicide. There's really a big list of unhelpful things people say. People say things like, you know, yeah, she must be, uh, she must have suffered so much. She must be better off now. That's uh, somewhat odd. Uh, it's I'm I'm sure there's some plan in the in God or in the universe that makes sense out of this, and mm. you know, I, I I you're strong. You'll get over this. Uh, mm. uh, uh, gee, you seem to be doing okay. I mean, people say just dumb things because they don't know what to say, and they are kindly trying to say something. I always have to yeah. remember that the fact that people say dumb things doesn't mean that their impulse isn't kind and caring, etc. But to switch it over to what are some of the things you can say that would be good? Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. Yeah, well, it's number one, I don't know what to say. I can't, it's hard for me to imagine what you must be going through. Uh, and I, I, I wish I could say something, but I really, I, it just, it just sounds so impossibly difficult. Well, mm. it, just the acknowledgement of the impossibility of the situation and the fact that nobody's going to actually say anything that's going to be that much comfort. People trying to say stuff, people finding their words, speaking up. It's not like you help by not saying anything. You know, I don't want to upset him, so I'm not going to bring it up. That doesn't mm -hmm. work either. Bringing it up, but bringing it up with utter humility about the fact you don't know what to do or how to say it or whatever. Mm, Actually, that's beautiful. Sounds right. It sounds, sounds reasonable. It, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, yeah, I appreciate you diving into that. Um, something I'd like to go back to is uh, you, you talked about the family response to the loss of your mother um, and, you know, suicide really being uh, a family event um, and the way it spiderwebs out and affects people you never would have realized it would have affected is pretty tremendous to watch that unfold. Mm. Um, what, what I'd like to hear about is something you said in an article that you shared with me for those left behind, which, mm -hmm. um, was really an incredible article. Um, I'll, we'll talk more about that in a minute here, but something you said in there that I'd like you, uh, to maybe relate to your own experience or what you've seen being on the other side of it as a therapist is the three things that you feel like families do, uh, when a suicide happens. Um, either uh, turn into each other, turn away from each other, or turn on each other, which I thought was a really interesting way to capture it. Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, it, it, and hopefully what that conveys is some of, some of the, the ways in which the overwhelming nature of the problem does, in, in fact, generally speaking, create, as you say, very big impact on the, the, the family, very big impacts on the family members. And the three things we're talking about, turning away from each other, that's pretty typical in the sense that people 
handle it differently and don't know how to deal with the difference between how they're handling it. So they, they pull away. If they're, if they're not having the same experience, they actually distance from each other. And mm. so it kind of separating out. And in, in many instances that takes root over time because the pain of really connecting around the loss, but if it's the, the siblings connecting or the surviving parents connecting uh, around the loss actually keeps the loss very real and raw. So one of the reasons, for example, why couples oftentimes get divorced when a child uh, commits suicide is because the pain of their relationship, that the loss, they can't get away from the loss. It's in the face of the other all the time. So so they, they constantly are triggering it and being overwhelmed by it. So eventually people can go their separate ways as, just as a survival mechanism. Mm. So, so turning away from each other happens in, in multiple ways. Turning on each other is actually a pretty conventional thing in the sense that part of what nobody knows what to do with, with uh, the fact of a suicide is the anger that gets stimulated. You know, how, how can I be that mad at my mom when she was desperate enough and in pain enough and, and overwhelmed enough to, to feel like she had to take her own life? My angry feelings aren't appropriate. That's bad. But there's a lot of angry feelings and guilt and overwhelm and grief and all this stuff going on. So one of the ways in which families cope is actually fighting with each other, taking it out of each other, criticizing each other. And that energy gets dispelled and brought out, not in a way that ultimately is great, because sometimes it becomes how families are, but it it does release built up tensions and feelings that families don't have the words for in a distracted sort of proxy war between people, you know, uh, because they don't know how to deal with the enormity of the grief. The next thing you know, they're fighting over what to do about mom's jewelry or what to do about this, about that. So, and the third thing that, that families do, and oftentimes is at the heart of what good therapy looks like, is helping families turn toward each other and learn how to be supportive to each other, even when they have very different experiences and different sets of feelings. So an, an angry member of the family can actually uh, be supportive to a grieving member of the family to, and, and they can be supportive to the frozen member of the family mm-hmm. because differences are made allowable. And oftentimes what good therapy looks like is really helping people understand the different ways that people grieve. And I'm a big believer of, in this line, which I use a lot, grieving alone lasts forever. Grieving together heals. Mm-hmm. And when, a family can can be close even with their differences then in some respects you can feel the healing process begin to take hold because there isn't a right wrong right or wrong good or bad way of going through this there's just the ways that people survive and and respecting that and appreciating that and not letting that be a barrier is the key to recovery for most families Wow. Yeah, that's that's powerful and, and very well said. 
What, what it brings up for me is I'm wondering what that process could look like for a family. Um, is it normal uh, for different members to be in different spaces and to toggle back and forth between turning toward your family, turning away, turning on? Is it something that is you bounce between? Is it a static thing? What does it normally look like? I think that's very smart. It is definitely a bounce between in the beginning because people are all over the place. Individually, people are, are all over the place. And then as a group, they bounce, they bounce off each other and oftentimes get reactive to each other. So that, so at the beginning, people can be in more than one spot at different times. They can move back and forth. And so it is pretty chaotic. As you mentioned, this article that, that, that I recently published, part of the reason why I wanted to present the case I did with the the girl who was wetting her bed, and that was the family problem, yep. except, you know, by the way, her brother had killed himself a year earlier, right. and that wasn't the family problem. And, and they were mad that the girl was wetting the bed, and the girl was just totally frozen. And nobody in the, nobody in the family was talking to her about what it was like to lose her brother because the mother was overwhelmed with her grief and that's what everybody paid attention to. So how that family moved through the therapy to the point where both the mother and the daughter side by side could each be writing a letter to the lost son, to the lost brother, and then reading it out loud in the therapy. They each had very different things to say, but, but there was room for both of them and they both could be heard at the same time. Hmm. So, so there are ways in which the art of the deal when you're trying to help families is to help them accept the degree of difference, to help them accept the fact that there are ways in which things can't be just made better and that they have to be, give themselves the gift of grieving time that you can't, you can't rush through it. And, and that people handle it in different ways and that needs to be all okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm glad you brought up the the letters um, that both, uh, I believe it was Allie and Sarah um, yeah. in, in your article that. That, they, that they wrote to their son and brother respectively. Um, if you feel it'd be appropriate, I'd like to read an excerpt from the letter that the mother wrote. Would that yes. be okay? Oh yeah, that's great. So uh, just for those listening, this is from an article that Dr. Treadway recently published called For Those Left Behind. Um, and the, the first part of the article focuses on a family who had just lost their son uh, to suicide. And they came in, uh, and as Dr. Treadway mentioned, presenting a problem that their daughter was wetting the bed, but they were ignoring what was the real problem at hand, which was they had just lost their son to suicide. And this is an excerpt from that article um, where uh, Dr. Treadway, as the therapist, recommended that the mother and sister write a letter to their lost one. And this was the an excerpt from the letter that the mother wrote to her son. Um, and I just found this to be incredibly moving. It says, Sweet Pea, she looked up. That's what I called him when he was a baby. Sweet Pea. I was holding you in my arms in the rocker and you were finally sound asleep. It had been a long night with you howling and I felt so sorry about having been so mad at you. You were only six months old and I was yelling at you for not sleeping for God's sake. But there we were rocking gently. I will never forget that moment. 
I so wish I could hold you in my arms in this moment. Uh, mm. I, uh, I sat here, read that last night. I read over it two or three times. I read it to my partner and we just kind of sat there and cried together. Uh, it's uh, unbelievably powerful and beautifully written. And I, want, I wanted to read it because I found it to be so moving. Um, and also wanted to kind of use it as a segue for something that I, you've mentioned in that article, as well as um, in your book as being something really important for you, which is this idea of writing a letter, continuing that conversation with our loved one that we lost. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that, both in the context of this article, as well as your own journey? Yeah. You know, I had tried a lot of different kinds of therapies um, because I, I really felt like there was something fundamentally wrong with me. I was outside, very successful doing, yeah, I was a good therapist with a very successful practice. I was, I had a good marriage and I had, you know, great kids. And so I looked okay, but inside I was kind of like an empty soul. And, and it didn't show and nobody would have known, but I, I kind of knew that, that I was sleepwalking through my life because of this frozen thing we talked about earlier. So I finally got to a therapist who, uh, who did encourage me to engage directly with my mother. And I don't know where the phrase came from. It might've come from her, it might've come from me, or, but there's a great line here that goes like this. People die, relationships don't. Mm. And that I was in a living relationship with my mother, even though she was gone. And I needed to be in that relationship more directly. And so writing to her, uh, even though she wasn't on the other end of the line in terms of getting getting what I wrote, actually allowed my heart to, to thaw and open uh, because... I could actually write this person in the same way the mom mom did in writing to her her son and reimagining holding him as an infant and then thinking about that heartache about wanting to hold him uh, in his suffering in his adulthood before he died that loosened up the the frozen energy and when when the frozen energy loosens up then the tears come. It's literally like ice. The ice melts. The water flows. Wow. And and uh, I, I had never been able to get to my tears. I could have tears for other people. I could have tears for uh, for my clients, for my wife, for my kids. But I couldn't have tears for me. And I actually couldn't have tears for my mom. It was all jammed. So what happened is I would write these letters and, I, and I'd write them at home kind of like I was still checked out. Dear mom, I'm just trying to write these letters in order to be a good therapy client. And I'm doing this because supposedly this is going to make it better between you and me, et cetera. It would start off that kind of lane. Yeah. But, but then my therapist would say, so why don't you read it out loud? And oh, wow. I would start crying when I said, dear mom, it didn't matter how lame my writing was, the act of bringing her into the room and, and, and expressing my feelings to her was really powerful. And then the tears began to come. And slowly over time, I learned to be able to really write about to her about uh, 
the complexity of my feelings. The other thing about writing that is therapeutically powerful is, and I give people this exercise all the time in therapy, which is you don't just try and write one kind of statement to the, 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 the lost person. You do a little writing day by day over a period of time, like a sentence or a paragraph. And because the feelings are so complicated that if you try and capture, capture them all, you'll just flood out. Yeah. But if, what are the feelings on a given day? So on a given day, I might write, dear mom, killing yourself is the most self selfish thing you ever did. And you are really a bitch about mm -hmm. being selfish. Mm -hmm. That was just angry. The very next day, I might be writing, dear mom, I remember when you took me on a skiing trip, just you and I, when I was only 12 and, and for some reason I got to go and nobody else got to go. And we spent a week skiing in New Hampshire and it was the, just the most wonderful thing. And then another letter might be dear mom, you know, uh, you thought this killing yourself was going to actually be good for the family. It has wrecked the family. You were really wrong thinking that you were doing everybody a favor. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you can get a lot of complicated things out if you're doing one thing at a time and you're just talking about the feeling of that day. Yeah. What, what do I want to say to my mom today can be very different from what I'm going to want to say to her tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So that therapeutic approach I've used for years and it is incredibly powerful because it, the process, think about this, the process of translating the mess in your head and in your heart into words, sentences, and signals from your brain down to your hand and onto the page is a process of metabolizing hugely complicated, difficult to digest feelings. Mm. The, the whole thing of going through that is empowering because you're finding words, you're finding language, you're finding sense in the moment out of the mess that's in your heart. Wow. Yeah. I, I love the way you said that. And I really love the, uh, the visual of metabolizing feelings and not, not to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like what you're saying about these writings is there is no wrong thing you could say to your loved one when you're writing a letter like this. Um, and I, th I think that's important to to pull on that a little bit um, because pulling on that would indicate that there's nothing wrong with any feeling you might feel toward your loved one who's completed suicide. Um, and I know sometimes for myself, when I feel that overwhelming anger come up, my first instinct is to shut it down. I, I don't want to be angry with my dad. It doesn't feel appropriate to be angry with my dad. Can you talk a little bit about the appropriateness of, of feeling the full spectrum of emotions and how one can allow themselves to feel that? Well, this won't come as a surprise since I am a therapist, but <laughs> there's no wrong feelings, yeah. period. There's no wrong feelings. There's a lot of wrong actions. And most wrong actions result from people not being able to make room for their difficult feelings, the feelings they don't think they should have. They're bad feelings like, you know, you know, not caring about your dad or feeling like, well, if, you know, good riddance. But you, we can have really bad feelings that are hard to acknowledge that that's how we feel. But it, feelings will out. 
if we're stuffing them, avoiding them, shutting them down, not dealing with them, they'll show up in some other way in how we do our lives. And oftentimes that's the place from which we do harm. Those, those blocked feelings that we're too ashamed to really acknowledge we have. And with, with suicide, uh, you know, the, the range of feelings are, are really complicated, but the key ones are unbearable grief, feelings of complicitness at the level of what should I have done? What could I have done? What might I have done differently that might've made a difference? So there's guilt, there's unbearable loss. There's also enormous anger. I'm going to, this is, sounds harsh, but it's true. We do have, and I tell my clients this, we do have to remember that suicide is not just somebody dying. It's somebody murdering someone's father, someone's uh, son, someone's mother. Murder takes place here. That's not to be forgotten. And with that comes enormous anger. How dare you murder my dad? Mm -hmm. You know, that is powerful. And so uh, the the angry feelings, the are just as healthy and as normal as the tears. And yeah, thank thank you for diving into that. Um, but I'm curious what you would say to someone who is going through this this type of loss, a loss to suicide. Um, either someone who is really close to the event happening and just trying to navigate the aftermath and keep their head above water, as well as someone who's maybe in a position as you found yourself being 15, 20 years away from the event and completely stuck. Um, It sounds like writing these letters based on current emotions that you're feeling, sharing them with a therapist or with someone that you trust, that sounds like a really good actionable step. Um, what, What else would you say to someone who's in that position? I think recognizing that this is not something you can get over on your own is incredibly important. So what kind of help helps? will vary with different people. Some people really get an enormous amount of help of finding, uh, you know, community with other survivors. And there are, you know, the American Association of Suicidology supports and, you know, survivors groups and stuff like that. And there is, there is just a remarkable kind of sense of, of, feeling less alone when you're engaged with fellow survivors. It's it's funny because it's also un- uncomfortable to engage with fellow survivors too. I, I was once giving a speech about my book at, at, at the annual conference of the American Association of Suicidology. And I was very comfortable giving my speech and talking about my book and my mother and all this kind of stuff to an audience of 300 people because I was at the podium I had the microphone. I was in charge. However, I went to a luncheon afterwards as just a fellow a survivor of suicide with the same 300 people. But I wasn't, I didn't have the microphone. I wasn't the speaker. I wasn't the big shot. And I felt so vulnerable. Hmm. And to suddenly be in this group as opposed to teaching this group. And, but what was interesting about it is it also felt like, oh, this is home. These people know. And the feeling of being in a room of people where, oh, these people get it. Yeah. 
It's very similar to how an alcoholic feels when they connect to AA. Okay, these are my people. I don't have to explain anything to these folks. And I had this wonderful feeling when I actually wasn't separated by being the, 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 the psychologist, the teacher, but just one of the group was deep and profound. So that's one thing that I would really encourage people to do. I would encourage people to, to actually read up with many of the books that are out there about families that survive suicide if they, they can't find uh, community. I think I have a strong bias that it's really important to be able to go to a therapist and 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 get help and 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 do that. And in family situations, it's really important for couples and families to be able to go to a therapist. But I I also think that part of what helps families the most is the 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 acceptance and the understanding that this is not something you actually get over you're not there's nothing in double a in the uh in the uh uh manual uh, the diagnostic manual of various treatment in various categories of illness etc they refer to complicated grief as a problem to be treated and it is a problem to be treated but it isn't a problem to be fixed you're, you're going to go through the rest of your life having feelings about your dad. I'm going to go through the rest of my life having feelings about my mom. It, I, just, I just saw a movie three nights ago called The Good House. Have you heard of that movie? I have not. Okay. Fasten your seatbelt and go <laughs> see it. It stars Sigourney Weaver and uh, Kevin Klein, uh, characters that are great film people that I like. I didn't expect to see this at all. And their depiction of this woman, Sigourney Weaver, going through alcoholism, like my mom went through alcoholism, and actually seeing the experience of shame and humiliation and hiding and lying and deceit and all the things that she went through suddenly out of the blue, this is, this is 2022. My mom died in 1966, hit me like a ton of bricks. Cause all of a sudden mm. I was seeing what it was like to be my mom in wow. her story. And it was sort of like, Holy cow. It, you know, her story is so tied up with mine and my feelings and this and that. But this was all of a sudden just her story. And it was devastating. And I was this past Saturday night, all these years later, I don't know how many hundred thousand dollars worth of therapy later. But <laughs> all these years later, I'm just crying from the marrow of my being watching this movie because at the end, the character gets help and she goes to AA and she gets into recovery. And my mom asked for help, but she didn't get good help. What she got was uh, a whole bunch of uh, addictive drugs that she was put on because that's what they did with ladies who are having difficulty in, in the 1950s. So she was an alcoholic and she became a drug addict through medical help. Yeah. So. So I, I saw the story of what my mom could have been because my mother was a pistol. She was really an amazing character. And if she had gotten the right kind of help, she would have lived for another 40 years. Mm. So anyway. I really, really appreciate you sharing that with me. 
Um, it, it's something I've been coming to terms with in my own journey here, which is that my dad didn't do this to me. <laughs> that was a feeling I had right away is that how the hell could he do this to me? How could he do this to us? It actually took a therapy session for me to realize he did this to himself. Um, and as you put it with seeing your mom in this movie, that's what it took for me is realizing where my dad must have been that the choice he made seemed like a good idea. That is really sad. That is really sad and really enables me to have compassion for how dark that place must have been that suicide seemed like the only viable option. Um, and it's that compassion that enabled me to break through some of the anger that I think I felt um, after thawing out. <laughs> yeah, that that totally makes sense to me. My, my breakthrough in that way was quite specific in my therapy back in the 90s. My mother had a self-portrait that she, she was an artist and she was a very accomplished artist. And she had a self-portrait that is bone chilling because the, her face in the portrait looks so cold, so haughty, so pissed off and generally the worst side of my mom. Mm. That when us kids saw that picture, it was like, oh, my God, she's looking at me just the way she did when she was angry and pissed off, et cetera. Yeah. And, in, and actually, I brought that pic painting to my therapist and we were put it up, propped it up in a chair and we were looking at it. And all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, she was never looking at me. She used to look at me that way. But when she painted that portrait. She was looking at herself. Wow. That's what she was seeing. That's, wow. that's the person she saw she was. And it was like, bam, just mm. me up the side of the head that that is what it was like to be her. She saw that person and there was rage in that person and there was self-loathing in that person because she was looking at herself and that's what she was painting. Mm. It, it was startling. Wow. That is, that is really powerful. Um, and I just, I just felt that hit me in the chest when you described it. And, uh, you know, for me, it's what I've realized, I think kind of like you were saying before with the goal of any good therapy being turning toward one another, turning toward each other, the most powerful experience I've had in, in the short time since losing my dad about five years now has been being able to turn toward him, um, mm. allowing myself to try to experience what he was feeling. Um, and that's, that's the feeling that can suck the breath out of your body. Um, yeah. it's really, really powerful and kind of spooky when it happens, when you can just feel completely dialed in with what his experience might've been like. This, this is really important for the folks who are listening to this conversation, because sometimes people are too glib moving to, well, it's just a mental illness. As if that dis that kind of wipes out the pain of the actual experience of the person getting to that point of desperation in their heart and in their head. It may be a mental illness objectively look, looking at it from the outside in, but that isn't actually what's going on internally. Mm -hmm. They are feeling the truth of this inexorable choice that the only thing that makes sense to them, the only way to deal with what's going on in their lives is to take their lives. 
And, and you know, it's somewhat insulting to dismiss that as, oh, well, that's just mental illness. It's not. It's way more powerful and, frankly, tragic. I I had a close friend. It's 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 really sad right now because I mean it's it was a it was two years ago this month who took his life and he was my editor for you know thirty articles I published over the years in a magazine over thirty years and you know he was a fabulous guy and loved by a whole bunch of people um, and he had severe. Uh, depression, which he overrode and overrode throughout much of his life. So he did have a mental illness, but he was a f- amazing personality and he had amazing courage. And the and the process by which, and he and I were in close communication towards the last year of his life, the process by which he was basically saying, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I've done it, I can't do it anymore. Can't do it. That wasn't didn't sound crazy to me. That sounded like just unbelievable pain after a lot of years of trying his absolute best to manage his demons. So, so yeah, people can not want to deal with the actual pain of what that person went through by dismissing his mental illness and being quick to basically call it that. That's not actually what it's like to be on the inside of suicide. Yeah, it's, it's really helpful to hear that. And I appreciate you sharing with me the loss of your friend. And I, I really deeply hate to hear that for you. Um, it's, I think, another misconception about losing one to suicide is once you've gone through it, you know the ins and outs of it. And I just don't, I don't think that's true. Um, I think I know what it's like to be a 26-year-old man and lose my father to suicide. I didn't know what that was like for my mom or for my sister or for his mother who is still alive today. I think it's such a uniquely different uh, experience for everyone in the web who's going through it. So to now experience losing a close friend must have been a whole brand new uh, experience for you. It, it, it really was because it it was, the, you know, I've, I have lost clients to suicide, but that's different from a close friend. And I, and I've, been involved with other people's suicide, but I've never actually lost a close friend. Mm -hmm. And so it was real in yet a different way. And, and he was also, we were talking about the fact that he was thinking about taking his life. It wasn't like it was being swept under the rug. It was right out there in the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I basically recognized that I wasn't necessarily going to be able to say or do anything that was going to change the course of his determination. But I felt really strongly that I didn't want him to not be able to talk about it. You know, I didn't want him to be alone uh, with this because other people would get too upset. Other people would try and fix him or change him or make him better. He had a ton of lovely people who were all trying their hardest to get him the best treatments and the this and the that and whatever else. And he'd had a bunch of the best of the best. Yeah. So he just needed to be listened to without somebody trying to change his mind. Just, just hear the truth of where he was. I mm-hmm. thought. Yeah. That's yeah. That's, that's really powerful and not, uh, not necessarily intuitive, which with what you would think you should say to someone who's in that position. 
And I'm yeah. curious what what you would say. Um, you know, when I when I started this podcast, it was really to do two things: to give survivors of loss a platform for sharing their stories about their loved ones, but also for giving those who struggle with their own suicidal feelings a place that they can go and hear others who have gone through something similar. Um, because I've had my own journey with that, uh, with with my own suicidal ideation and hospitalizations and substance abuse that came along with it. And it's a hell of a place to be uh, where the, the way out of it seems like it's about this narrow. And I'm curious what you would say to someone who's at that crossroads where they are uh, either seriously contemplating taking their own lives or where they may be entertaining it as a good idea. That's a really important question, and, and my and the answer is hard because it really would vary. Uh, like, like bearing witness to what my friend was going through without trying to change him would not be a normal response. It was a response to a guy who had a whole bunch of people trying to help and make differences and everything else, and who was feeling pushed away by all their efforts, et cetera. And he just needed somebody to listen to him without trying to do that. And that was mm -hmm. clear to me. Yeah. It didn't, it didn't save his life. It didn't, it didn't change his mind, but it did. I think, I think it was helpful to him in his journey. Yeah. That was that person when it, in regular circumstances, whether it's with a client or a friend or anybody, I would really try to get empathically connected to their particular logic that makes them think that this makes sense. I would, people move too quickly to trying to talk people out of the, that kind of deadly logic, to put it bluntly. And I would want them to really, really feel understood and heard. You know, people come, people, people rarely kill themselves uh, without some rationalization that makes sense to them. Like my mom died because she she made up a story that her alcoholism and her drug addiction and her hospitalizations were too much of a burden on everybody. And she was just a drain on the family and that everybody would be better off without her. That that was her story. So that in some respects, she felt like she was being a good mom by taking her life. So it was all rationalized in this kind of crazy way. And the first thing I'd want to do is not treat it as crazy, really try to understand it. How do you, how do you get there, et cetera? And, and after, when people really feel listened to well, then they are more, more, more open to hearing you. So listen first and then, and then I think that uh, you really have to appeal to the possibility that of two things. One, that people they think will be better off won't be. And that's generally true. And I can assert that pretty strongly. That's not the case. It's, that's an erroneous idea. And two, you'll be relieved is actually an erroneous idea too, because you'll be dead. You, you, you won't actually feel better taking right. your life. And number three, people who have tried to take their lives and survived it, 
generally speaking, instead of feeling relief when they've started the effort, either jumping off a bridge or doing something that they survive, within a nanosecond of getting started down that road, they regret it. That wow. is demonstrably true. And number four, people feel rigidly stuck in the idea, this can never change. This will always be this way. So I might as well end it now. And and you can actually, and this is cognitive therapy, really, you can actually challenge that thinking by saying, well, wait a minute, everything changes. That's the nature of things. You can't know this will never change. It just feels like it will never change. It feels like it's unbearable. But unless you're God or something, you can't actually know either. And what if it could? What if this could be different still? If it could, and then I will say, I've said this before, you can tell, I would say, and by the way, if it could be different, if you didn't have to feel this way, would life be worth living? And people without even thinking about it say, oh, yeah. Wow. I go, oh, yeah, huh. Okay. Well, maybe we need to think about the possibility that this could be different as opposed to looking through this narrow little aperture at the only truth that you can imagine. You know, so so there's lots of ways to talk to people. Those are some of the ways in which I would be trying to reach people. That's yeah, very well said, and and I definitely have, uh, took your point of the nature of how different it is for each person who's going through it. Um, I, I I don't know how true this rings for you, but I have referred to uh, suicide as a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, yeah. And obviously I use the word solution intentional there. Um, but uh, as, as you were talking, um, you, you were, you were talking about, you know, someone making the choice to complete suicide and them actually surviving it. And it made me think of a song that I heard um, and I'll put the song in the show notes for anybody who would like to hear it. And I'll send it mm. to you as well, Dr. Treadway, but it's a song called a wave across a bay. Um, mm. And it's by a gentleman named Frank Turner, um, who I had on a previous podcast of mine. And he wrote it about his friend, Scott, who was the lead singer of a band um, named Frightened Rabbit. Mm. Um, and it's about his coming to terms with Scott's suicide. Um, mm. And I'm, I'm getting chills right now just thinking about the song. Um, but he talks about speaking to Scott in that song. And it just really seems to tie in nicely with a lot of the yeah. stuff we've talked about on, on, on this episode. Um, just wanted to mention that. And like I said, we'll, we'll drop you a link to that uh, after the show. Um, there, there are a couple different directions I'm feeling compelled to go in. Um, but the first, because it seems related to some of the things we've just talked about is, and what made me think of it was you sharing about the loss of your, your friend who was your editor. Um, not to assume, but it's, it sounds like he would fall in the unfortunate demographic that is men of a certain age, uh, age range being four times more likely to, to complete suicide than other demographics. Mm. And I'm wondering what your, what your thought is on that. Um, and if you have any ideas as to what may be contributing factors to it. Yeah, no, it, it, it's interesting. Um, a fairly high percentage of men just by the nature of, what our society expects of men and how men get uh, boys get trained to to master feelings and control feelings rather than share feelings and open up feelings 
by the age of five or six, and that's still true all these years later, there are ways in which boys get socialized to contain, hold in, and, and control their feelings, and girls get socialized to share their feelings and support each other. They get a relational solution, and boys get a mastery solution. And, and it, what it means is that oftentimes on the journey of men on the planet, they actually aren't in good relationship to themselves and the their difficult feelings, et cetera. They're not in internal dialogue. It's all tamped down, blocked, not connected to. And oftentimes that in, really increases the weight of the feelings they're carrying because they can't be released. They're, they can't be cried. They can't be talked about. There's no language or words for it. So guys are particularly vulnerable to uh, uh, not being able to process the enormity of their feelings. And guys are used to the idea of mastery of feelings as a way of getting rid of them. And when your feelings are too big and you can't master them, the idea of an action step, you know, a permanent solution to a temporary problem, the idea of an action step suddenly can make sense because they are doing something. It's proactive. It's powerful. It's strong. And so there are ways in which the nature of how men are socialized uh, does, in fact, fit uh, the creation of that demographic of a much higher percentage of guys who are vulnerable to suicide in midlife to late life in particular. But uh, because Guys are also not all that equipped to deal with the vulnerability of getting older and getting mm -hmm. less, less important and less power and less strength. I mean, the, the, for guys, deterioration is taken personally. You know, like there's something wrong with them if they're not what they used to be, when in fact, none of us get to be what we used to be. And that's just the deal. Yeah. yeah. Well said, um, and definitely gives me another angle to think about this, another lens to look at it through. Um, it makes me it makes me wonder what what do we do about that? Because I think you're spot on in terms of some of the contributing factors that um, lead men uh, four times more likely down the path of of choosing suicide. And you know, outside of uh, something that I'm a big proponent of, which is getting your ass in therapy. <laughs> uh, it's something I advocate for all of my friends, um, especially my male friends. Um, I think that's how you start to deconstruct some of this messaging that we're given from yeah. the time we're really young, where it's okay to share these heavy things and it's not a burden and it's actually helpful for you and the person that you're sharing it with. Um, so that I think is, you know, one important aspect for combating this is there anything else that comes to mind for you in terms of how we start to break down and deconstruct some of this stuff that we're taught from as soon as you know we're born, essentially? It's it's happening, actually. It's happened. It's been happening in my lifetime, uh, and and men are are evolving, but the rate of the, the pressure of a rate of change makes it very difficult for men to evolve quickly enough around the level of stresses and, and tensions, you, you do have a whole population of men in our culture who are feeling 
disempowered and dispossessed and marginalized by the very fact that they're no longer in a hierarchically went up position. Being, yeah. being to be blunt about it, being a, a white male was was status just by that. And you had women to joke about and you had yeah, diversity people to make fun of. And you, mm-hmm. you had some sense of status and hierarchy that was powerful just by the group you belong to. And that's actually disappearing before people's eyes as, as we become a more inclusive society and some of the intense pushback we're getting from folks really is this energy of displacement. People are, when they talk about replacement theory and, you know, the, the, the white people are being replaced, it actually is displacement. They are losing status and power vis-a-vis the larger society and they're fighting back. So yes, it's evolving. There's more room for boys to play in the dress up corner in, in, in kindergarten and yeah. to have tears and all that. It is evolving. But it's evolving very slowly, and the issue is intensifying very dramatically. So it, it, there's there's no quick answer. Yeah. I kind of got lost in that answer, but anyway, it's complicated. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, I'm going to butcher this, speaking of getting lost, but I heard a quote uh, a few months ago, and it was actually a big part of what inspired me to start this show, which was that a man's purpose lies where his grief is. Um, and I thought about that in relation to losing my dad, um, understanding, uh, what goes into someone's suicidality, um, understanding and navigating my own journey through that loss. Um, and this seemed like a way that I could tap into it. uh, That was tangible for me. I could share about it. I could speak with folks like yourself who have a lot of experience and expertise in helping folks navigate things like this. And what I'm wondering is, is that something that spoke to you as well, uh, being a, I believe, 20-year-old man losing your mom to suicide and then finding your way into being a therapist and an educator who helps people through grief and loss? <laughs> this is, we, I, I think we're at an, our natural ending. I believe know, so. Because this is where we started. And I said at the very beginning, one of the oddities of what happened to me after my mom's suicide is I actually got empowered and took on a new role in my family, which has ended up being my whole life's calling. So being a therapist came directly. I never would have been a therapist if my mom hadn't killed herself. It's a direct response to suddenly feeling empowered by the role of taking care of others. And it has shaped my life. And for years, one of the comp- you'll appreciate this. One of the complexities of being a good therapist and being frozen, both, was because when I connected to other people's pain, when I was taking care of other people, I wasn't frozen. I was mm. alive and well and present, emotionally heart centered, very much in a in a good place for others. So my profession perfectly fit me because I was pretty contained. I wasn't emotional about my life, but I was very engaged with their life. So, so me learning how to, how to actually be connected to myself the way I used to be just connected to my clients 
was really the heart of my journey. And when I wrote my my memoir, my original title I liked better. Uh, my original title was "Borrowed Tears," because wow. my health and recovery was deeply connected to my having my tears through my clients' tears. There, so it both helped me, and at a certain point, it became obvious that I was hiding behind it. I had to go find my own tears, which yeah. is why my story, your story of healing, has started a few years into your dad's death. My story of healing actually didn't start for a long time because I was doing fine taking care of other people, but I was really missing me in the story. So, you know, yes, in, in fact, it has shaped my life. My wife and I, my wife and I, uh, she was, we met in college and we were celebrating 56 years of marriage this year. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. But what our connection was, was her dad had died when she was 15. My mom died when, when I was 20. And we hadn't had anybody who really knew what the experience was like. So we connected at the deepest level around that loss because our friends didn't know how to help. And so her dad died of, of a heart condition. And she's had a wonderful life being a doctor and taking care of people like her dad. And I've spent I've had a wonderful life being a therapist, taking care of people like my mom. It's really a direct connection. Wow. and a calling so so that i really yeah absolutely i really appreciate that answer um this has been an incredible conversation i've learned a lot um there is one question i'd like to leave you with just to kind of wrap things up um and then I'll, I'll take us to closing um kind of revisiting the topic of of your mother who um correct me if i'm wrong her name was martha is that right martha yeah. treadwell treadway yeah. excuse me um I'm, I'm curious if there's something that you would like to leave our listeners with, something you want people to know or remember about your mother. I think, you know, you, you, are, you read something from an article of mine. I think I'd respond to that by reading something from my book, Dead Reckoning. Please do. That would be, that would be great. Okay. And while you're grabbing that book, uh, I have it here as well. It's, it's on the docket for me to read it this weekend. For anyone who um, is either going through uh, the loss of a loved one to suicide, dealing with their own suicidal feelings, or just really wants a good read, um, this is Dr. Treadway's book, Dead Reckoning. I'll put a link in the show notes for where you can pick this up. Um, I've found it to be an incredibly helpful tool thus far um, and really appreciate the way that it's written. Um, and I'll, I'll hand it back over to you. Hopefully I bought you enough time to get to your page. <laughs> uh... You know what? I'm, I'm not going to read from that book. I'm going to read from another book. This is funny. I I have done a lot of writing about uh, my mom. So so this is at the end of the first book I ever wrote, which is about family treatment of substance abuse. Given the fact mm -hmm. that I grew up in an extensively substance abusing family. Yeah. So. I'm just going to read this. It captures something for me that I want to share. Well, mom, the book's done. It's called Before It's Too Late. I wish you could read it. Actually, I don't care much about you reading the book. I wish you were here.
Mm. Wow. Beautifully written. Thank you for sharing that. That that feels like a uh, very powerful note to wrap things up on. Um, again, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you, appreciate you taking the time to join us. Um, for anyone looking to learn more information, I will also put uh, Dr. Treadway's um, information and website in the show notes. Um, on his website, you can find his books. You can also find uh, any upcoming events. Um, he also has some workshops that he's taught in the past and may have some coming up. So um, Dr. Shredway, I really appreciate you joining and, and look forward to uh, chatting with you again soon. Uh, and and if people can get to my website and they want to talk to me directly, they can email me directly and I will respond. Very cool. Well, thank you, Dr. Treadway. All right. Really good to have this conversation with you and good luck in your recovery journey. Really. Thank you. I really appreciate you. Thank you for taking the time out. Okay. Take care. Bye.